The children may be dismissed at this time to go to catechesis of the Good Shepherd. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, the word has already been proclaimed. Lord, I pray now that the Holy Spirit would continue his work of tenderizing our hard hearts. Lord, I pray that the words that I have prepared to be offered before you this morning that your Holy Spirit would touch them, Lord Jesus, that you would break the bread of life, you would bless it, and that you would feed your people, and we would go away nourished and full of wonder, love, and praise because of what you have done. Come now, Spirit of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here we are at Palm Sunday, a Sunday that starts off great and then ends in epic failure. Um, Epic fail, that is a term that has spawned its own industry of websites dedicated to life losers. Every form of pathetic pratfall or stupendous social gaffe or boneheaded blunder is now immortalized on YouTube for the ages for all of us to see and to witness. I watched them last night. Uh, I went to the uh, Popular Mechanics website. And it linked me to YouTube so that I could watch uh, 11 epic missile failures. So that was really interesting for me. That tells you a little bit about what I'm interested in. But why do we get that weird satisfaction? We get a weird satisfaction of seeing it online. But when we come to Palm Sunday, we need to ask ourselves, is this really something that you want to base a world religion on? Seriously, I mean, how do you go from nearly universal adulation on Palm Sunday, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, with the crowds crucifying you in the space of a week? I mean, think about it. We start off with Jesus entering into Jerusalem at the center of a teeming crowd that is hailing him as the messianic king of Israel, the son of David. He has gone out of his way to orchestrate these events, to communicate to the people that he is indeed the one spoken of by all the prophets. Coming up from the Mount of Olives, riding on a donkey, even the chants of the people all point to Jesus as the promised one. As they say, he's got the big mo. He's got momentum. He's on a roll. And as he enters the eastern gate of Jerusalem, everyone knows what the Messiah King will do. He will lead the armies of God up to the Antonia Fortress, where the oppressive power of the pagan invaders is ensconced in the form of the Roman soldiers garrisoned there. And then he will slaughter the enemies of God and establish the throne of David. And he will begin to rule the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. But what does Jesus do? 
he immediately heads to the temple, to the heart of the religious establishment, and then he trashes the bookstore and the gift shop. (laughs) Well, not exactly, but he overturns the money-making scheme of the mainline religious establishment, and then he calls them a bunch of thieves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Ooh, that's a bad move, Jesus. These are your own people. You know, we are, everybody knows that the temple authority has its issues, but you need these guys on your side, and instead, this is an epic fail. The next day, when Jesus shows up in the temple again, the chief priests and the elders of the Jewish people ask him by what authority he is doing and saying these things. And instead of being polite, Instead of consulting a PR firm, he makes them look foolish in front of the crowds. He embarrassed and humiliated a group of men who just don't expect to be treated that way. And again, you could have played this differently, Jesus, but instead, no epic fail. And he didn't leave it there. He told the intelligent, learned, holy, important religious people, truly I say to you, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the whores will get into the kingdom of heaven before you do. Well, that didn't bless their heart at all. (laughs) And he just kept saying more and more provocative things like that. And he didn't just call out the mainline Protestant establishment. He went after those pietistic fundamentalist evangelicals, the scribes and the Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. (laughs) You serpents, it gets better. (laughs) You brood of vipers. How will you escape being sentenced to hell? Again, this did not bless their hearts. It's like he is deliberately just trying to make enemies. This is an epic failure. Finally, even one of his closest friends has had enough of this unmessianic behavior. And he betrays Jesus to the religious authorities for 30 pieces of silver. And that's when things really begin to go sideways. When the soldiers come to uh, arrest Jesus, every single one of his close, close friends runs away. Then the leader of his disciples who has followed him to where they are holding the phony trial, that leader of the disciples ends up denying Jesus three times. Or in case of our own Jesus, because he's played Peter twice this Sunday, six times. (laughs) The mainline religious authorities torture truth itself in order to condemn him. The average people of Jerusalem are screaming for his blood. 
The political establishment forfeits justice to convict him and has him scourged within an inch of his life for no reason at all. The the military police torture him and revile him and strip him naked and nail him to a cross. The religious elite and the fundamentalists stand around and insult him as he gasps for breath as he is hung on a gibbet. And who is at his right hand and who is at his left hand? Who's there right and left of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom, when he is lifted up in his mock coronation and the writ declaring him king of the Jews is nailed to the throne of his cross? Well, it's not disciples James and John who just a week before were scheming to literally be installed at his right and left hand when he came into his kingdom. No, instead, it's the scum of the earth, trash-talking robbers who mock and scorn Christ, even as the gaping maw of death yawns before them. All of humanity spends itself in an orgy of hatred and bloody violence against this man who just seven days earlier humbly enters Jerusalem riding on a common beast of burden on a donkey. And at the very end... Jesus doesn't die with the quiet dignity of a philosopher like Socrates or with the heroic cry of freedom on his lips like William Wallace. Instead, he just gasps out Psalm 22, verse 1. Eli, Eli, leme sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even God has deserted him. Utter defeat, utter loneliness, utter failure. And that's almost how it ends. But not exactly. Because God hasn't abandoned him. This, listen, well-planned failure. This well-planned failure had to be played out to its bitter end because the epic failure here is not Jesus. The epic failure here is the lost, rebellious, condemned human race. He had to embrace epic failure this way because that is exactly where we are. Humanity's situation is just that dire. Your situation is just that bad. And people have gotten mad at me for saying this from the pulpit before. Well, you'll just have to get mad to hear it again. We all just suck at life. We wrap this story in so much dewy-eyed religious paraphernalia that it totally loses its power to reveal the abject, relentless hopelessness of our life without God's intervention. Unless God does something, unless God acts, we are epic failures. We attenuate its horror because ultimately it all points back to us. We are the epic failure. Jesus became the epic fail so that in him we might become the ultimate success of being reunited to our loving God. Or as St. Paul says it, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And as Jesus breathes his last, the gospel tells us that, in fact, Jesus has not been forsaken by God. He's not been deserted by God. In fact, far from this being an epic fail, far from being an insignificant, isolated, historical blip, far from just another crucifixion in an empire where crucifixions happened on a daily basis, no, the entire cosmos is shaken by these events. The sky turns dark and darkness covers the whole land. The earth shakes. The rocks split. The curtain of the temple is torn in two and the tombs are opened. And even the centurion who oversaw Christ's supreme moment of humiliation and uh, torment has to confess, surely this man was the son of God. This was epic. But it was not an epic fail. In fact, brothers and sisters, this is epic, splendid triumph. As St. Theodore has said, how splendid the cross of Christ. It brings life, not death. Light, not darkness. Paradise, not its loss. It is the wood on which the Lord, like a great warrior, was wounded in hands and feet and side, but healed thereby our wounds. A tree had destroyed us. A tree now brought us life. The tree of the garden destroyed us. The tree of the cross now brings us life. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Lord, we are so busy, we are so distracted, we are so anesthetized by our comforts, Lord, that we do not realize until we are made face to face with this moment that we are tragic, epic failures apart from you. Lord, I pray that even as Our Savior's blood runs down from his head, his hands, his feet, his side, and drips on the caked earth of Golgotha, that the blood of the Lamb would act as a solvent on the hardness of our hearts. Without you, Jesus, we are epic failures. Thank you that you became a failure so that in you, we might be given glory. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that this is not the end of the story. And we can't wait to hear how good the good news really will be. In Jesus' name, amen.